This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 21st, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The Constitution is one of the greatest achievements in Western history, creating a government constrained by the very passions that power inspires. Bob Levy is chairman of the Cato Institute. This is the second part of an extended discussion we had in November on a variety of subjects rooted in the Constitution's delegations of power and protections of rights. Part of the brilliance of the Constitution, as it was written, was that uh, in crafting it, uh, every part of the Constitution had a defender uh, with overlapping powers over somebody else somewhere uh, in the Constitution. Uh, The Commerce Clause is one of those, uh, arguably, and I think Madison wrote about this, that the selection of U.S. senators by state legislatures actually was going to be a sufficient uh, check on encroaching federal power. That's no longer the case. Senators are elected directly in the same manner that uh, U.S. representatives are. Yes, thanks to the 17th Amendment. Of course, there's some movement now, uh, particularly with the focus on the Constitution that uh, has arisen as a result of the Tea Parties some movement to uh, revisit the 17th Amendment and uh, restore the uh, Senate election process to state legislatures, reestablishing the notion of federalism. I frankly doubt that that movement's going to get very far, although I also think it would be a good idea if it did get a little further. One of the risks, of course, is that the, uh, the process by which the Constitution is amended is that it requires two-thirds of both houses to propose amendments, then they have to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. Um, That is the only way by which amendments have come to pass. There is an alternative process. Uh, It's unlikely that we'll get that process implemented uh, by this Congress or any foreseeable future Congress. The alternative process is that the uh, states call a constitutional convention. The fear there, and it's never been done before, uh, the fear there is that Uh, the Constitutional Convention uh, will not be bounded by any notion of what its duties are. And if we want some precedent for that fear, take a look at the original Constitutional Convention, which was called together in order to modify the Articles of Confederation and, as we know, ended up rewriting the entire uh, Constitution. So there is a concern that if we try to get a constitutional convention that would revisit the 17th Amendment, that that constitutional convention would end up uh, revisiting and perhaps rewriting lots of other portions of the Constitution that we wish they had not uh, revisited and uh, rewritten. Um, So notwithstanding that the um, um, revisiting of the 17th Amendment might be uh, uh, something that... uh, we should undertake. I I don't believe it's going to happen. And there are reasons uh, to prefer that it not happen, at least not through the means of a constitutional convention. We talked earlier about where libertarians and conservatives part ways, at least with regard to uh, the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution. What is that uh, conservative view of the Constitution? Well, the conservatives purport to uh, be textualists, in their interpretation of the Constitution, uh, as contrasted with this living Constitution theory that the liberals uh, subscribe to. Uh, Textualist is a term that needs to be uh, defined, particularly since it's confused with a number of other terms that are also identified with conservatives. A textualist 
is a theory of constitution, a means by which the constitution is interpreted in accordance with the meaning of the words as they were originally ratified. Um, that's quite different than um, the term um, strict construction, for example. And yet strict construction is, is a, uh, a term that's frequently identified with uh, conservatives. Uh, Scalia has, has described the difference quite succinctly. He says, uh, I'm not a strict constructionist, and no, uh, nobody ought to be. Uh, the words in the Constitution should not be interpreted strictly, and they should not be interpreted leniently. They should be interpreted reasonably in accordance with their meaning at the time they were ratified. So if, if you wanted uh, to identify the very best tool you could have at your disposal to interpret the Constitution, uh, the tool for the textualist would be a contemporaneous dictionary, a dictionary that existed back in 1789 for the original Constitution, or say 1868 for the uh, post-Civil War amendments. And that dictionary would not define words strictly, and it wouldn't define words loosely, it would define the words reasonably in accordance with what they meant at the time. And that's the tool uh, that textualists uh, ought to be um, um, uh, applying. Now, the, there, there are other uh, terms that are uh, uh, also identified with conservatives that are not uh, entirely accurate or partially misleading. And one of those is original intent. And again, uh, conservatives believe in the meaning of the words, not necessarily uh, the intent of the framers. And Scalia, again, captured the difference very succinctly. He said it's the law that governs, not the intent of the lawgiver. The difficulty with original intent is that it focuses not on the words that are written in the document, but rather on the objectives, the goals, the purposes of those who wrote the document and those who voted for its ratification. Uh, problems that uh, would arise in applying original intent would be, for example, whose intent is authoritative? Uh, suppose it were the case that uh, some of the framers differed with one another, as we know is the case. Uh, for example, Madison and Hamilton had vastly different views about the powers of the federal government, and in particular about the uh, general welfare clause. That being the case, which of the uh, f framers would be the one to rely on? Moreover, how do we even know what their views are? The records of the Constitutional Convention uh, were very sparse, and mostly they consisted of Madison's records, and so we only have uh, Madison's viewpoint of the matter. So original content, uh, intent is something that textualists fall back on when, and only when, uh, the words in the document are not uh, clear then textuals will look not only to original intent, but also to the structure of the document and the history of the document. Structure meaning the extent to which various provisions in the document interact with one another and the overall framework of government that the framers intended to establish, focusing on limited government, enumerated powers, federalism, and uh, separation of powers. History of course, refers to what was happening at the time and perhaps shortly thereafter, right after the, the, the terms in the Constitution uh, were ratified. So this resort to intent, structure, and history comes only if the words of the text are somewhat equivocal. You were one of the counsels on the Heller case that uh, enshrined the individual right to keep and bear arms that is in the Second Amendment. 
one of the cases that immediately followed that, the McDonald gun case, which came back to the Supreme Court. And, and here is, uh, I think, an example of what you're talking about, that is, in drafting, uh, in creating the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, there were specific events uh, that that amendment's framers were responding to, one of which uh, blacks and abolitionists being stripped of their weapons uh, in many states, and they wanted to make it clear uh, that a portion of that amendment dealt specifically with that issue, which Alan Gura made that argument before the Supreme Court and did not find a friend in Antonin Scalia. That's true. Uh, or, or to be somewhat more precise, he did find an, a friend in Antonin Scalia with respect to the end result. That is to say, Antonin Scalia was perfectly willing to interpret the 14th Amendment as applying uh, the Second Amendment to the states. So he would have protected uh, the rights of blacks and abolitionists to keep and bear arms. But he would have done so by using a provision of the 14th Amendment that Alan Gura and I and others uh, find to be ahistorical. Namely, uh, he would use, Scalia would use, uh, the Due Process Clause, despite the fact that Scalia in the past has been a vocal critic of the Due Process Clause. Um, he would use the Due Process Clause primarily because that's what the court has done uh, for the last uh, 100 uh, years or so, 120 years or so, uh, the court has used the Due Process Clause uh, to apply uh, the, f- the various uh, rights in the Bill of Rights uh, to the states, much more consistent with the uh, text and the history and the purpose of the 14th Amendment would have been to use the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And by the way, that clause is an example of where the text is a bit murky, Privileges or immunities of citizens. Nobody quite knows exactly what that means, so you do have to resort to the intent of the framers, what was going on at the time, as you've mentioned, the black codes and the inability of blacks and abolitionists to defend themselves against uh, folks like Klan members, uh, and what was the structure of the Constitution and the purpose of the legislation that was passed in accordance with the 14th Amendment, Uh, to guard against this inability to defend oneself. So the privileges or immunities can be fleshed out by looking at all of those things. It's very difficult to flesh out the due process clause, which, as its name applies, is procedural. Process is procedural and not uh, substantive. Privileges or immunities are substantive. Somebody once wrote that the dirty little secret about the due process clause is that the word after due is process. And somebody else uh, said he had spent hours scouring the Constitution and could not find the Due Substance Clause. Well, indeed, that's a perfectly valid criticism. The Due Process Clause is about procedure. The Privileges or Immunities Clause is about substance. And yet the court in McDonald insisted on sticking with, really because of precedent, the Due Process Clause in order to apply the Second Amendment to the states. They would have been better off. And Justice Thomas wrote to this extent that the court would have been better off, more consistent, more compliant with text, structure, history, and purpose of the Constitution if it had used the Privileges or Immunities Clause to that end. Speaking of due process, I believe it was in the 1920s when the court found that uh, complex laws that uh, we might have to guess at their meaning – uh, may be considered void for vagueness. That is, we don't know what it means. We can't. Uh, we can't. It's not useful. 
And uh, but that hasn't stopped uh, Congress in a lot of ways from crafting laws that um, put people into uh, terrible situations that where they uh, cannot depend upon the law as a guide, as reasonable uh, thinking adults trying to interpret the law to decide what is legal and what isn't. Yes. The one thing we know is that in order for laws to be effective, uh, individuals must know how to comport their activities uh, to comply with those laws. And when the laws are written in a vague fashion, such that it does not give us adequate notice about how to adapt our behavior to make sure that we are behaving in a legal fashion, then those laws should be stricken down as unconstitutional. The court, as you say, has been reluctant to strike down laws for vagueness. It's done so uh, on some occasions. One reason for that is that the Congress, despite passing vague laws, has delegated, as we spoke earlier, to administrative agencies the authority to flesh out the details and to make these vague laws a bit more precise. That delegation process in itself is, in my view, unconstitutional. And yet the laws, if they were not delegated, would also be unconstitutional because of vagueness. The answer, uh, in a nutshell, is for Congress to flesh out the details itself, or at a minimum, if it chooses to delegate a responsibility to administrative agencies, the acts of the administrative agencies must then later be certified by Congress as being in compliance with the guidelines that Congress has uh, established. That at least would give voters recourse if the laws were so vague uh, that voters didn't know how to comport with the dictates of the laws. The remedy for voters would then be vote the bums out of office. They can't do that with the unelected bureaucrats who run the administrative agencies. What is your view uh, of the Tea Party movement, given what you know about it? It's, it's a broad-based group with a few uh, things that uh, stick them all together. Just what is your evaluation of them? Uh, two very positive aspects of the Tea Party movement. One is that they have so far focused uh, their attention on limited government, less spending, lower taxes, reining in the uh, explosion of uh, government power that has existed uh, under not just the Obama administration, but, but frankly the Bush administration as well. That's a very healthy development. Uh, allied with that development, and the second thing that I think is most important about the Tea Party is a refocus on the U.S. Constitution. Uh, the Constitution does give us the very best framework of government uh, we could possibly uh, hope for. It has been, um, for more than two centuries, an adequate guide to governance. But its bounds are being stretched beyond recognition by an overreaching legislature and a compliant uh, federal court system. The Tea Party has refocused uh, the voters, and I hope the legislature, and even the courts, on the limits that are imposed by the Constitution. That, I think, is a very healthy development. And if the Tea Party did nothing else but that, uh, we should be very thankful for uh, the existence of this uh, movement. My concern is uh, that the Tea Party will allow itself to be co-opted by uh, the Republican Party will become an arm of the Republican Party, uh, highlighting not only fiscal issues but social issues uh, where Republicans and libertarians, for example, are in disagreement. 
and where there is an internal conflict between the notion of social conservatism and the notion of limited federal powers. Bob Levy is chairman of the Cato Institute. This is the second of a two-part interview recorded in November. You can get your copy of the Cato Constitution at our website, cato.org.